according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We are in the book of Hebrews. We are still in chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews. Join me if you would there. Although we are looking at verses 10, 11, and 12, and so we are approaching the lower portion of the chapter. Hebrews 1, verses 10, 11, and 12. We're in the midst of a uh, proof text. As we've been studying the last couple of weeks, there's a powerful uh, introduction to the book that is verses 1 through 4, some of the deepest doctrine you'd ever want to study or, or consider. And then concluding that introduction in verses 1 through 4, the author then, uh, who I think is Luke, but you may accept it as Paul or Barnabas or whoever, the author of Hebrews takes his uh, readers through an Old Testament survey to outline everything he said in verses 1 through 4. And so uh, the glories of uh, the Son and uh, His righteousness and His promised reign and uh, the fact uh, that He is the Creator. The creation was an emphasis in verses 1 through 4 and we will see it again here uh, this morning in verses 10, 11, and 12. Before we do get started though, it's important that we take a moment for silent prayer to make sure, first of all, we're not carnal. If you're out of fellowship in any way, then take this moment to uh, confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But even if you're not carnal, take this moment to quiet your heart, to humble your heart, and to ask the Father to bless our study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning so thankful that if we judge ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. Father, I thank you that we can search our hearts and we ask you to search our hearts. See if there be within us any wicked thing so that, Father, we can be convicted of it, we can confess it, we can cast it far from us. And Father, we thank you that we can be here this morning worthy to study the Word of God, not worthy of ourselves, but worthy in Christ because your Son is the one that is worthy of all things. And I pray as we study these truths that you would open the eyes of our understanding, you would give us a better appreciation for the totality of your grace eternal plan. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so uh, we're in a a section here, really, that starts in chapter 1, verse 5, and it's going to take us to the end of chapter 4. All right, we have the prologue in verses 1 through 4, and then we have a section that in my notes anyway, I haven't really put it on the screen, but it's labeled God's King Son. And in the early chapters, it's highlighting Jesus Christ as the King Son. All right, when we get into chapters 5 and following, we'll emphasize Christ as the priest son. And we'll see the beloved son who serves as the high priest. And we have the priesthood information uh, starting in chapter 5 and taking us all the way to nearly the end. It's a real simple outline, one that I shared with you as we introduced the book, and it's the one I've been following. So uh, just stay tuned as we stay in this kind of similar development through the end of chapter 4. But as we look at Jesus Christ here and the uh, scriptures that speak to him, I won't reread the the great prologue in verses 1 through 4, but the prologue ends with angels, that he's become as much better than the angels. And as the prologue ends with angels, the Old Testament survey then begins with angels. And so starting in verse 5, it says, to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And the quotation there from Psalm 2, and a tremendous amount of doctrine that goes into that, because we understand deity is not begotten, but humanity is. We understand that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all co-equal, co-eternal God. The Son has always been the Son, has always been God. But His humanity is what had a beginning. His humanity is, is not eternal. The humanity of Christ began with the Father begetting his human nature. And so we've had some studies on that. There's more to have on that. In fact, this is so deep that it, uh, uh, in talking with Pastor Robbie Dean last Friday, I, I, this may come up at a Schaefer conference coming up, this whole, uh, this whole aspect of the eternally begotten Son. And so we have text. We have text from Psalm 2. We have quotations that come from Second Samuel, quotations that come from 97, uh, quotations from Psalm 104 that speak of the angels being winds and the ministers flames of fire. And uh, just the the entire overwhelming shotgun approach to Scripture. We have Psalm 45, the enthronement psalm that's spoken of here in verse 8 
of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. And so we have quotes here from Psalm 45, or uh, 5, 6, and 7 in, in, uh, in that stretch. Which gets us now to verse 10. I think we've done everything I want to do in verse 9. Um, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. And so the king is God, but he has a God. And we recognize that that's the Father and the Son and that powerful union between the two. Jesus told his uh, disciples and even told his critics, I and the Father are one. And everything the Son does, he has learned from his Father. It says the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing that the Son may do likewise. That was the pattern for first advent, and we're going to learn very quickly, it's also the pattern for second advent, pattern for his millennial reign. Everything Jesus does in the millennial kingdom, he does having learned from the Father in uh, setting that example. All right, so therefore God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And of course, that takes some work as well. We spent uh, last week detailing us, the bride of Christ, the church, some, uh, something that could not be done in Psalm 45 because in the Old Testament they didn't know about the church. In the Old Testament the bride was a mystery. They had no idea about Jews and Gentiles being baptized into union with Jesus Christ. They had no idea of our current church age where, where we are today was entirely a mystery to the Old Testament saints. And so the idea that the king would have a bride, the concept was there in Psalm 45. There's a queen that's spoken of and uh, there are virgin daughters that are spoken of, but no, no frame of reference in any Old Testament text would have clued them in to you and to me, to the bride of Christ, to the church age. All of that uh, requires a New Testament perspective. And so thankfully, of course, in the book of Hebrews, we have that. We have an Old Testament and New Testament perspective to be able to define who the companions are. Who are the companions? How is a, a, a wife, a, a friend, a helper, and also a companion in uh, what we have in the high calling of, of God in Christ Jesus? The fact that we are partakers of a heavenly, heavenly calling, that we are fellow heirs with the, heir, with the heir of all things. All of these principles that apply to you and me, to you and I here as, as members of the, the body of Christ. All right, so that was last week. And if you weren't here or if you were sleeping or not paying attention, uh, I encourage you, go get on the website, go to austinbiblechurch.com. The MP3s are sitting right there. Just click on the Hebrews label and it'll give you all the Hebrews classes and uh, get caught up on, on that message. Moving on this morning though, creation in verses 10, 11, and 12. And here's a stretch. comes out of Psalm 102 and uh, three uh, verses out of Psalm 102 get quoted here in verse 10, verse 11, and verse 12. So you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. Uh, They all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. All right, so there we have it. And these verses come right out of Psalm 102 in a context that the Old Testament saints would understand. They understood the, the coming kingdom. They understood the coming king. They understood the new heavens and new earth. Uh, Isaiah spoke of the new heavens and the new earth. And so that's not mystery doctrine. Looking forward to the millennium, looking forward to the fullness of time, that's not mystery doctrine. That's very understood in an Old Testament theology. And yet it is unfolded to a greater degree because of our New Testament theology. And we want to be able to appreciate both especially in a Hebrews context, the way these things are being spelled out here. All right, so we go back to the beginning. And you, Lord, in the beginning. And we got some things to deal with. And it's kind of curious because we're talking about creation, but we're also talking about old garments, right? Like, a, like a, 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 an old shirt that's so old and so worn out now. Um, evidently, it's, it's not appropriate to wear it anymore. And that's a uh, I don't know, I, I don't understand that, but my wife assures me that that's true, that when, when a garment gets that old, you really should stop wearing it. And um, I don't know. That's why God gave us helpmates, and, and that's a blessing. And God gave us Scripture, because uh, this universe is like an old garment, and a day is coming 
when it gets burned, <laughs> okay? And uh, it's going to be fun to think about. All right, but we start with verse 10. And uh, let me get to our correct slide here, which I think is there. Well, voila. Okay. Um, Psalm 102, verses 25, 26, and 27. These are the verses that are brought now into Hebrews in, uh, in verses uh, 10, 11, and 12. All right? This is the proof text quoted to demonstrate the prologue's declarations of Jesus Christ as Creator. Now, they're slightly different, but nevertheless, it does show that, that the Lord is the Creator, that uh, the, the babe born in the manger is the Creator of heaven and earth. And it's, it's amazing to think of how humble He truly was, right? That the Creator of the universe is now cradled in human hands is, is staggering to consider. But that's what we deal with. God became man, the Word became flesh, and did so in humility. He didn't just teleport to the earth and assume a, a huge, you know, Conan kind of warrior body and uh, ride on a conquering stallion and conquer everybody, right? He came, first of all, for nine months in a womb, all right? And then he was birthed and he, and he lived the entire human experience in, uh, in, uh, in doing so. But as we look at this, it's, uh, again, it's an Old Testament theology brought into the New Testament. This is not mystery doctrine. The Jews in the Old Testament understood creation. They understood in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But we have more beginnings than they had. And it's important for us to identify the beginnings of Scripture. And so I want to spend some time with that here this morning. Because there are several in the beginning passages of Scripture. And they are well worth careful study. And if you've been here any length of time, you've had several of them or even all of them, depending on what series you were a part of or what classes you attended. And, uh, and we want to be clear on all of these because I think even, uh, even a sloppy study uh, still is in total defiance of our day and age and our total defiance uh, of our culture because uh, the world tells you that, no, in the beginning was a big bang and then it was, uh, you know, billions and billions of years and then, there, and, you know, in the beginning, not in the beginning God, in the beginning goo, right? And, and it's just sad. You know, and then the goo, somehow, life, somehow. Goo became living goo. And then, and then animals, right? Somehow, goo became animals. And then animals became us. And, you know, that's, I'm oversimplifying, but uh, why not? It's stupid to begin with, so let's oversimplify. The whole thing, what Ken Ham calls from goo to you by way of the zoo. That's the, that's the model of, of uh, Darwinian evolution. But, um, no, in the beginning. And our Bible says, in the beginning, God. Right? In the beginning, God. And so for God to already exist and be an actor in the beginning tells you God preceded in the beginning. Now, there already is a God who created the heavens and the earth because it was in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We also have passages that speak of from the beginning. And we have passages that speak of before the beginning. And so clearly, for God to be the subject of these verbs, God has to exist and pre-exist everything that He does. God's being pre-exists His doing in the sense of uh, bringing about an existence beyond Himself. Universe, angels, man, all of that came about after God brought them about. And uh, and so we understand that. If you're not familiar with some of these, uh, Genesis 1, we're going to look at all of them, okay? Genesis 1.1, one. like we're starting over or something. <laughs> but um, let's take a look at it. <clears throat> Big debate, of course, over um, different things. And uh, in fact, gap theory is now mocked and ridiculed and rejected. Even good doctrinal men that used to teach gap no longer teach gap anymore, and I'm sorry about that. Uh, they, they answer to the same Lord I do, but I still teach gap. And uh, I teach double gap. In fact, one guy was mocking me. He said, you, do you still teach that? And it was really ugly. And I said, yeah, I teach that. In fact, I, I teach double gap. And let me, let me walk you through it since, you know, you're struggling here. Um, the, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens. And right there is your first gap, Okay. And I realize the, the verse in English just rushes right through. It says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But in between creating the heavens 
and creating the earth, a whole bunch of other stuff was happening. And it doesn't say so here in Genesis. You don't get every answer in Genesis. There are questions in Genesis that get answered in Job. They get answered in Psalms. They get answered in Isaiah. They get answered in Hebrews. They get answered in the New Testament. There are more, I won't say more, but there are many questions in Genesis that answers in Genesis does not have. And I don't want to be I don't want to be uh, mocking. I don't want to. I don't want to. Just, I, I love what they do. I'm very much positive towards answers in Genesis or Creation Science Institute or some of these other organizations. I'm thankful they exist. I'm glad for what they do, but they have shortcomings, and those shortcomings speak to the uh, the fact that they all ignore angels. The the, the shortcoming uh, I think becomes a slavish idolatry of Genesis because not every answer is in Genesis. Yes, you can get a lot from there and you want to be grounded in Genesis, but some answers come elsewhere. And we're going to see Job here in a moment. Because angels are on hand to to, uh, celebrate when God creates the earth. Well, how does that happen? Because there's no angels anywhere in Genesis chapter 1. There's no angels anywhere in Genesis chapter 2. All of a sudden, uh, Adam and Eve, uh, they, they become sinners. They get kicked out of the garden. And then God puts a cherub there with a flaming sword and all of a sudden it, you just it hits you like a ton of bricks like what's a cherub right and you go back what's a sword you know and you go back to chapter 1 chapter 2 it, the first use of the word cherub is right there in chapter 3 when he's standing there with a sword keeping them from going back in the garden and you realize the detail of specificity on angels is not given in Genesis 1 and 2 and so answers in Genesis won't touch angels and, and I've tried. I've spoken with their speakers. I'm one of those pesky question answers when the, when the sermon is over, when the sermon, but when, the, when the, the presentation is over and I'm raising my hand and raising my hand and then eventually they stop calling on me and I, I have to go get them afterwards. <laughs> Satan is a fallen creature. The serpent has fallen already. He's evil, lying, fallen. In verse 1 of chapter 3, when did he fall? You know, never mind when was he created, when did he fall? And, uh, and, and they don't have any answers. Okay? And they've told me, they looked me in the eye and said, we don't get into angelology. I said, that's your problem. Okay, That's your problem. And so you won't find your answers in Genesis in that regard. All right. So in the beginning God created the heavens, first gap right there, and the earth. Second gap. The earth was formless and void. Well, how did that happen? All right. Because that was not in the beginning. That was after verse 1 is verse 2. The earth was formless and void. And sadly, I think, a, a destructive red herring, a red uh, yeah, herring was thrown out there, in which case uh, a lot of arguments happened between Hebrew experts. Okay? And Hebrew experts would argue, because some people want to translate this uh, as became instead of was. Right? The earth became formless and void. And if you do translate it as became, then it's really clear that verse 2 comes after verse 1. It's not a restatement of verse 1 in any way. Um, but then a bunch of Hebrew experts got together and said, no, it's, it's wrong, it's wrong, you can't translate it as became. And they, they had some reasons why. And they, they made a compelling case. In my mind, they made a less than compelling case uh, because the exact construction that uh, they say, no, it can't, it can't, it never can, and you're stupid, blah, blah, blah. I can show you 12 other places in the Old Testament where it is used that way and, and it, they're fine with it being rendered became and uh, so forth. But, but see, here's the thing. I don't care. Call it was, call it became, call it anything. Just take the verb out. The earth formless and void. Well, how did it get that way? Because it wasn't created that way. It was there, it was created, and when it was created, it was beautiful. When it was created, the angels were singing. But the earth became or was formless and void. I don't mind was. And well, how did it become that way? James, you know, we have passages that tell us from Isaiah and Jeremiah and Psalms. We have passages that tell us it was the destruction of the angelic warfare that left it tohu wabohu. And uh, darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Look at that. So there's the earth and there's deep and there's waters, and they all exist, and we haven't even gotten to day one yet. Okay? Verse 3 then, God said, let there be light, and there was light. 
And so we have day one with a spoken pronouncement here of God, let there be light, and there was light. I love the fact that God speaks to bring this all about, that it's the Word of God that brings all these things about, that it's Jesus Christ who is the member of Trinity that accomplishes all this, because it's Jesus Christ that reveals the Father. It's Jesus Christ, the Word that communicates. He's the image of the invisible God. And here He is revealing the Father in the uh, verbal creation. So God saw the light was good, God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, the darkness He called night, and there was evening and there was morning, day one. All right, so there we have it. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I'm just showing you here is a in-the-beginning text. And an in-the-beginning text that has deep truths in itself, but it also leaves the things unsaid that have to be resolved from other passages of Scripture. And so we will do so. Uh, Like Job, Job 38. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, get to Psalms, you've gone too far. See, Pastor, we don't care, we don't use paper Bibles anymore anyway, we just tap our buttons, and uh, it doesn't matter to us if Job comes before Psalms. All right, God bless you. Uh, Job 38, verses 4 through 7. Notice I still have a paper Bible in my pulpit, still wear a tie. All right, we still sing out of hymnals. Church where the funeral is going to be on Tuesday doesn't use hymnals. Silly me, the moron. I emailed their office staff to say, what, what hymnal do you use? All right. <laughs> so, Job 38. Now, now this is cool because this is um, sanctified sarcasm. This is this is Jesus being being extra cool when he when he when he calls Job out and he says, "All right, smarty pants," he says, "You're not me. You'll never be me. You weren't there when I did what I did." And so the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, "Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge?" Right? You sure talk a lot for a guy that doesn't know what he's talking about. Now gird up your loins like a man. I love that. Right? All right, smarty pants, pull those pants up and teach me something. He said, I will ask you and you instruct me. All right, then. You want to be God? Great. I'll be your disciple. Teach me something here. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And so this is neat. This is a, this is a, um, a process now. In fact, we have details, including foundational details that aren't given in Genesis. We just have created the heavens and the earth. Not a, not a reference to the foundation anywhere. But here's foundations. Tell me, since you have understanding, who set its measurements, since you know? I mean, obviously you were there. Who was holding the other end of that tape measure? Right? I used to do that for my dad a lot. Hold this. Okay? I was horrible with tools, but I could hold stuff. So hold this. And he would stretch it out, and he'd take his measurement. And, and here's the Lord rebuking Job. He said, you weren't there, were you? Or you would know. Who, um, who set its measurements since you know? Who stretched the line on it? If you're hanging a, a plumb line, well, who did that? Um, you know, why is the earth the size that it is now? Will the new earth be the same size or bigger? Why do we only have one moon? I feel cheated. Okay? All of these things. Jupiter's got 24 moons or something like that. Why? We get this one crummy thing? Anyway. So here he is walking him through. Walking him through. On what word's basis sunk? Who laid its cornerstone? Now in going through all this, not only was Job not there, but somebody was there. Okay? A whole lot of somebodies. A choir. It says, when the morning stars sang together. Now, not every angel is a morning star, but a classification of angels are called morning stars. And the sons of God, not every angel is a son of God. The highest of them were the Bnei HaElohim, sons of God, and uh, sometimes just called Elohim, just called gods themselves. And they were there. They saw God do this. So where were you when 
the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And he goes on, or who enclosed the sea with doors? All right, and then other details on that. We get through some other things. But here is, um, not only uh, was Job not on hand to start everything going, Job uh, is not the one that keeps everything going. Verse 12, have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? Hey, guess what, Job? The sun came up this morning and you didn't do that. Okay? Isn't this beautiful? And God said, guess what? I did that. And what we learn in Hebrews, of course, is that Jesus Christ is the one who created everything and upholds everything by the word of his power. That's Jesus Christ. Created everything, upholds everything. And yes, the sun rose this morning. Thank you, Lord. Caused the dawn to know its place. Anyway, there's more. And uh, some things, including the uh, depths of the sea. Uh, We get into some angelology dimensions even in some of this. Uh, Verse 16, have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And darkness, where is its place? And so there are extra dimensional realms of existence. If you're going to be God, you've got to know all this because you created all this. So take me to its territory that you may discern uh, the paths to its home. You know, for you were born then. <laughs> Clearly, you know. Okay. The number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Have you seen the storehouses of the hail? Oh, there's so much here. Anyway, uh, you get down to verse 31. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Understand the astronomy that they had when Job was written? It's extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. Can you lead forth a constellation in a season and guide the bear with her satellites? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens or fix the rule over the earth? Now you might know what the constellations are, but you're not moving them around the way they're supposed to move. God does that. Anyway, it's a fun chapter. And uh, the, the thing to keep in mind is that angels were on hand to witness the creation of the earth. And so to me that's extraordinary. And we have other passages of Scripture that help unfold that as well. The fact that the heavenly host was created to populate the heavenlies. And it's, that makes sense to us because when we go through Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God establishes the realm or the domain, right, or the habitat. He creates the habitat, oceans, and then he puts fish in there. And sky, and he puts birds on there. And land, he puts animals there. And, and it's always been his pattern that he creates the realm and then he populates the realm. And so this heavenly host, why did they precede the earth? The earth's not for them, okay? But did they precede the heavens? I don't believe so. The pattern is he created the heavens and the heavenly host, and the Psalms puts it in that order, okay? And so to me it's kind of curious in the sense that I uh, remember when God created all the animals and, and he deliberately brought Adam to the point where Adam was looking around and saying, something's missing here, okay? Adam's looking around and he says, uh, you know, I don't have a helper. You know, male and female, he created them, where's my female? And he's looking around and he says, these animals, they don't, they don't cut it. They, they, uh, they've got a male-female tandem and where's mine? And, and he noticed See, it was not good for the man to be alone. And so God said, all right, here you go. And so God left one thing left out, right? And when Adam wakes up, what does he see? Okay, To me, that's the pattern. And we have it here in Job 38. Because God created the entire universe minus planet Earth. The Milky Way, the Andromeda Galaxy, I mean, just everything all laid out there. Our sun, all the planets, no Earth. Okay, it's just a an orbital hole, just in a spot. That third spot from the sun didn't have a planet there. God gathers the angels around now and says, "Okay, now watch this," and He allows them to watch what He does. It's a beautiful thing, I think, in uh, in that regard. So we have a beginning, we have beginnings and uh, aspects there, 
And it's kind of curious too, even in that rebuke about, you know, you know you were born then, even that's an insult. Because anybody that's born uh, has a mother older than them, okay, has a, has a mother to, to birth them. And so if, you know, just reminding you, you know, oh, you think you're God? You're a born thing, okay? God was not born until the Word became flesh and then His humanity was born. Anyway, we get all that. So let's go to um, Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 8. More detail, things that are not in, um, in Genesis. All right, Job, Psalms, Proverbs. Some of you are going forward. This is another argument we have. I'm going towards the back of my Bible, but some of you are going forward towards the back of your Bible. I got in trouble the other night for saying turn back to when it was turned forward to. All right, Proverbs chapter 8. Here's another beginning passage. Have you ever been taught this passage? Well, here, but Proverbs 8, not a lot of attention gets fixed on this, but verse 22 has a beginning, and it has a from, and it has a before. The Lord begat me, or possessed me, acquired me. I I don't mind any of those translations. I think acquired is maybe the best for kana. The Lord kanaed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. And so here's a beginning, but here specifically, not only is a beginning, but it's before anything else, right? So in Genesis 1-1, we had a beginning, but even there, there's a sequence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which came first, okay? So yes, it's a beginning, but then there's a sequence. Same thing in Job, there's a beginning, but there's a sequence. Same thing in Proverbs, there's a beginning and there's a sequence. And we're specifically told that there is a first before anything else in that beginning, At the beginning of his way, before his works of old, from everlasting, I was established. That's why we, we, view, we visualize this as the boundary of eternity past and time. Okay? Time is, is in between eternity past, eternity future. You've got moments. Time is just a sequence of moments. Okay? This moment, followed by this moment, followed by this moment. And we can't turn the clock back. We can't return back to a previous moment. We are proceeding moment by moment through time from the alpha moment to the omega moment. There is coming an omega moment when time concludes and you and I will cross into eternity. Okay? But there was also an alpha moment. There was an alpha moment. And it's, it's hard to envision the concept of before the alpha moment because it's the timeless eternity past. And yet... From everlasting, I was established. Really, this is the alpha moment. This is the kickoff. This is what sparks. Every other moment is after this moment. And there is no moment before this moment. From everlasting, I was established. From the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. See, he was there. He preceded all of that. Not only did he precede all that, he did all that. Which we learn down in verse 30. All right, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. When he not yet made the earth and the fields nor the first dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. Aha! See, here's more questions in Genesis that get answered in Proverbs, okay? Because in Genesis 1.1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But here it says, when he had not yet made, when he established the heavens, I was there. That's not in Genesis 1-1, but it's here. It's here in Proverbs chapter 8. By the way, this is, this is so powerful. I know we went through it. I know we talked about it with uh, the, the quote from Psalm 2, right? Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. What day is today? When he says, today I have begotten thee. What is that day? That's this day right here. It's the alpha moment. It is the first day. It's the only day. Okay? It's day one of time. And it's being described here. Not only is begetting, like I mentioned, you could have the term begetting in verse 22, but it's also birthing. We have birthing language. Verse uh, 25 is birthing language. Before the hills, I was birthed. 
I was brought forth. The Hebrew verb there is birthing. Same thing in uh, verse 27. No, verse, uh, where's the other birthing? There's a couple of birthings. Verse 24, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. I was birthed. In verse 24 and in verse 25, I was birthed. So the beginning of Jesus Christ, the beginning of His humanity is here. This is an in-the-beginning passage that's before Genesis 1-1 because it was the God-man who created the heavens and the earth. It was Jesus Christ, the God-man, who created the heavens and the earth. He did Genesis 1-1. So in order to do Genesis 1-1, Proverbs 8-22 has already happened because it's the God-man that created the heavens and the earth. So we have those passages. And you'll note there is a tandem here between the Father and the Son. In verse 30, I was beside him as a master workman. John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. I was, in, I was beside him as a master workman, and I was daily his delight. That's not eternity past. This is daily. This is the temporal present. This is now post-birthing of the humanity of Christ. This is now with the God-man in a daily fellowship with the Father. Daily his delight. Rejoicing always before him or playing always before him. Don't fathers love to play with their sons? To watch their sons grow? To watch their sons learn? To watch their sons play? To watch their sons experience good things? Okay? And daughters, sorry. <laughs> All right, children. The son delighted the father and the father delighted the son. Playing always before him. Playing in the world, his earth. And having my delight in the sons of man. And you'll note what God the son was delighting in is a realm of creation that doesn't come around for quite some time. Angelity was here for how long before humans came along? But the son's delight was in the sons of men. You ever think about that? Children have their favorite toys, you know, the ones that they play with more than any others, the ones they barely play with at all, the ones that, you know, they, they, one day later they're bored with it and you wonder why don't I spend so much money on that. And then other ones that they play with, that they still play with, that they have, you know, they still have in their 20s, okay? When you say, well, that was money well spent, <laughs> okay? Man. And uh, so, again, using the metaphor here of Jesus as the Son, what was he playing with? Was he playing with the angels? He wasn't playing with the angels. The angels weren't his favorite toy, okay? You know, and do we ever get upset, you know, if our, we want our boys playing with G.I. Joe, not with Barbie, okay? We want uh, our girls, you know, I'm, I'm just going to stop that right now because that, that'll get me in trouble. But the point is, there are certain toys that we wonder, what are you playing with that for, Right? Here, smash this truck against something. Um, regardless of what toys the parents want the kids to play with, the kids play with what they want to play with. And Jesus wasn't playing with the angels. The toys he was playing with was humanity. Okay? You get what I'm saying there? I'm just using a metaphor because Proverbs 8 uses it here. But he says, rejoicing or playing... In the world, his earth. Playing in the world, his earth. And having my delight in the sons of man. Okay? Not the angels. Now to me it's extraordinary because the, the heavenly hosts that were created, they populated the heavenlies and then God said, okay, watch this. And he, they observed that him create the earth and he was preparing a place not for them. Okay? And yet he took some of them and put them there. He took some of them and put them there on a holy mountain. And even the highest of them didn't like it. Satan was one of the ones put there. And he didn't like it. He didn't like the placement upon a world that he knew was not for him. Okay? He did not subject to angels the, the world to come concerning which we're speaking. Okay? It was designed for humanity, not the angels. And the idea that they would, they would serve a function on this uh, on this earth to whatever it was they were doing there, to sanctify it, to pray over it, to run temple operations for a period of time. And then he goes and he perverts it. 
He absolutely defiles his temple. And he leaves the world in the wake of the warfare there. He leaves it a smoldering wreck of tohu wabohu, formless and void. Okay? I've even read some pastors think that Satan was the one that caused the tohu wabohu, not God. That it was his uh, burnt earth policy, right? Or, or tohu earth policy that, that Satan himself deliberately despoiled the earth. Genesis doesn't tell us. It just says the earth was formless and void. It doesn't tell us who did it. Okay. <clears throat> anyway, more questions in Genesis. And so rejoicing in the world his earth, having my delight in the sons of men. Now therefore, O sons, listen to me. And so the God-man has a, question, has a message for the sons of men. And this is the redemption message to humanity. Blessed are they who keep my ways. Heed instruction and be wise. Do not neglect it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorposts. And so the sons of men, we're talking humanity, you and me, we ought to be imitating the God-man, Jesus Christ. We ought to be daily watching and waiting. For he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. If you have Christ, you have eternal life. If you don't have Christ, guess what? (laughs) You're going to hell. Blunt as that, okay? This is an Old Testament gospel passage right here. And it's grounded in the God-man, creator of heaven and earth. That he who sins against me injures himself, and those who hate me love death. All right. So there's an Old Testament gospel for you from a Hebrew passage. John 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning... Another beginning passage. <laughs> All right. So uh, what did we decide? We decided that Proverbs 8 preceded Genesis 1. Okay. Because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But we learned in Proverbs 8 that it was the God man. It was Jesus Christ, the begotten son of God, who was the master workman who was standing with the father. They did all these things. So uh, the, the Proverbs 8 beginning is before the Genesis 1 beginning. And let me tell you, the uh, John 1 beginning is before all of them. In the beginning was the Word. This is self-existence of being. This is I am. This is the language of, of, uh, of being. Not becoming, but being. We don't get to becoming until later. Here is being. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perpetual being. Always existing. Pure actuality. Always uh, in fellowship with one another. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Or He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. All right, now we're starting to get into some creation, okay? And so now we can start to reach the uh, Proverbs beginning and the Genesis beginning. But the John 1, 1 beginning is before all of them in the fellowship that Father and Son had, okay? Now, if you want to deny that, that's the spirit of Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. But it's key from the beginning and it will be key at the end. Because you know what happens at the end? Jesus delivers the kingdom back to the Father, that God may be all in all. Again, it's the Father and the Son. This is the plan of what we're dealing with. All things came into being through Him. Apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So if it's a created thing, He created it. If it's a created thing, He created it. If it has become, okay, God is the only thing that is. Everybody else is a became I'm a became, you're a became, Satan's a became, we're all becames. God is the only I am that never became God. Not only that, so there's being, there's existence, and then there's life. In him was life. Why in him was life? And the life was the light of man. Why is that? Because the Father had begotten him, okay? Today I have begotten thee, and the God-man is the one. Why are we made in the image of God? Because he's already the God-man at the point that Adam is, is made. In him was life, life was the light of men. I like to stress that when I talk about funeral messages and things. You know, there's life and then there's life. And bios thinks, speaks of biology. And we all get that. We're biologically born, but we're spiritually dead. That's Zoe. And Zoe life... Um, 
You only get that by trusting in Jesus, okay? When you believe in Jesus, you receive Zoe life. Until then, you're just dead in, in Bios life. So the light shines in the darkness, and darkness did not overpower it. So we have the first advent, and the light comes into the world, and the rest of the, uh, the content that's there in, in John chapter 1. So God the Son is eternal. God the Son has always been with the Father. God the Son has always been eternal, but then the Father begat His humanity. Okay? So we go from John 1, 1 to Proverbs 8, and the Father begets His humanity. And so God the Son receives a human nature begotten from the Father. And now He's the God-man. And now we have time because now we have other things that come into existence. And everything that comes into existence comes into existence after the birthing of the humanity of Jesus. Right? Following all this? Because He's the firstborn of all creation. And we get to that in Colossians chapter 1. So if you want to put these in a sequence, and I know you do, because we are creatures of time bound by time. We are sequential linear beings. Right now you're wondering when the sequential linear class is going to be over. Oh, we still got time. Colossians chapter 1. All right. See, um, I think if you do your homework in Genesis, in Job, in Proverbs, in Psalms, I left some out in Psalms, in uh, John, I think if you do your homework in all of these, Colossians 1 is a no-brainer. Colossians 1 is just a, well, duh, yeah, okay? But if you don't do your homework in all those others, then Colossians 1 becomes problematic. And then you start tap dancing, and Greek scholars will come along and start saying, well, firstborn doesn't always mean firstborn. Okay, fine. I think Greek scholar doesn't always mean Greek scholar either. How about that? (laughs) Um, if, If you're trying to convince me that the Bible doesn't say what it says, then we got a problem, okay? Fundamentally. Now, we can, we can debate what it means, but don't lie to me about what it says or what it doesn't say, because it says what it says. So um, we come to this, and, and man, thanks be to God, we're saved. He's uh, give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Okay, well, we just went through John 1. We know what that is. That's in him was life. His life was the light of the world. That's us being saved, walking in light and life. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's what God the Father did for each one of us. For me, it was a Saturday morning in 1973. And uh, my mother sat me down at a dining room table and gave me the gospel. Okay, for you, it was whenever it was. When that happened... When you were persuaded and when you believed, then God the Father personally grabbed you and transferred you, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And there is no separation. Once you are there, you are eternally there. In whom, that's in Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Not in ourselves, not by our good works, not by what we do in Christ. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, Jesus Christ, the one in whom we have redemption, He is the image of the invisible God. Oh, look at that. I thought we just learned that, didn't we? In Hebrews, here it is. It's in Colossians, okay? Where He is the radiance of His glory, the the visible manifestation of His nature. Okay, that's Hebrews. Here, he's the image of the invisible God. How do you see the invisible? Trick question. It's invisible. Ah, except Christ is the visible. He is the visible of the invisible. Image of the invisible God. And here he's called the firstborn of all creation. Thank you very much. And I'm not afraid of that. I don't have to explain that away. I don't have to dance around it. Or tell you that firstborn doesn't always mean firstborn. It does, and it does here. He is the firstborn of all creation. Because the Father begat His humanity before He, the begotten Son, created everything else. 
You follow? With me? All right. The firstborn of all creation. For by him, that is through the firstborn of all creation, having already been born, having already received a human nature, it's not just God the Son that created everything, it's the God-man, God the Son, who created everything. By him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. This is, these are some an, uh, answers in Genesis that were left as questions in Genesis. Because nothing invisible was described in Genesis 1 or Genesis 2. No angel, no cherub, but here it's described, Jesus created them both in the heavens and on the earth. Populating all the heavens, of course, first in the angelic realm, bringing them around to watch while he created the earth. Then they could sing. They could tell him how great he is. Great is the Lord, greatly is he to be praised. Okay? Because it wasn't Job that did any of that, and it wasn't even those angels that did any of that. They were watching. They were watching while God did what they could not do. Some of them might be called Elohim, but they're not creators. They didn't create the earth. God did. And so um, by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And I like the fact that it says visible or invisible and then it never does mention a visible thing after that. It just This text is totally, totally absorbed in the angelic realm. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Same doctrine that Luke gives, or the author of Hebrews gives us in Hebrews. I think it was Luke, but whoever. Okay. In Him everything holds together. The sun rose this morning, thank Jesus Christ, and the planet didn't blow up. Okay. Thank Jesus Christ. Okay. And don't worry about Al Gore and global warming or any of that. Okay. He holds all things together by the word of His power. If, until he gives the word, see, he will give the word someday and then every molecule of physical existence explodes. Until then, Jesus keeps it all together. And as if that's not enough, <laughs> you know, can we stop the chapter there? Oh, wait a minute. Now he's already been first place over everything. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, in him all things hold together. How can we add any more to everything? Well, we can add more to everything if we create something new. And that's the body of Christ. That's the church. A new creation. He also is the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead. Okay, the firstborn of all creation, also the firstborn from the dead. In his resurrection on that Sunday morning, April 5th, 33 A.D., He resurrected into a resurrection body. First one ever. Okay? He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure. Remember that last hour? The Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. And that's what we have. The plan of God centers on Christ. If you have a plan of God and it centers on anything other than Christ, your plan of God is not biblically accurate. Okay? The plan of God is not human-centric, it's Christ-centric. And it's not even redemption-centric. Redemption is necessary because as fallen creatures we we need redemption to to, to get us to where God's taken us, but that's not the original, uh, I mean, that's not the big deal. The big deal is Christ. All right. Redemption's a part of the big deal. So we have beginning passages. Genesis 1, Job 38, Proverbs 8, John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. I expect we need to have a handle on all of these. The author of Hebrews certainly did. He absolutely did. Not only with the physical creation, but also with the ages. In fact, that the ages have been unfolding in the sequence that they're unfolding in. So let me get back to, to that. And then we'll talk about perishability. So let me return to Hebrews chapter 1. By the way, if there's anything this morning that is not clear or you have questions on or is just blowing your mind, you're thinking, Jesus was the son before the manger? Yes. 
He had a human nature before the virgin ever got pregnant. He had a human nature before there was a virgin. Human nature before there was an earth. He had a human nature before there was a heaven. That's what Proverbs 8 is telling us. That God the Father begat His humanity before His works of old. From everlasting I was established. All right. So uh, it's just the, when the virgin got pregnant, then the God-man received a body. That's what happened. Okay? And then that body was birthed into the, into the world in the manger. That's what happened. But he was already humanity long before. Long before. All right. Back to Hebrews then. And... Um, 10, 11, and 12. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands, and they're the finger works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They all will become old like a garment. Like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. All right, so he created the universe, he created the heavens, and as he created them, they were not eternal creations. They were created temporal. They were created temporary. They were disposable from the day they were created. Keep that in mind. The, uh, oh, I don't have my science guy this morning. The, the, the laws of thermodynamics, right? The second law of thermodynamics. Everything is decaying. Everything is collapsing. Okay? Why? Because God made it that way. Not because of sin. Not because of sin. This world is not, it's under a curse, but it's not perishing because of sin. Let's keep these things in mind. And I'll prove them to you here in the, in the text. Perishability is by design and not a consequence of sin. They will perish. So the heavens are the work of your hands. He said it was very good, but it was very good while still a perishable thing. They will perish, but you remain. They all will become old like a garment. You know, if you look around at creation, you're supposed to see the power of God. And I think you see the power of God every time something dies and falls. Every time something temporary proves itself as temporary. Every time a star falls. And you go, wait a minute. The eternal being, this universe is not eternal. Okay? Even if big bangers want it to be. It's not. And uh, the fact that these things perish and God does not. That's the point. Perishability is by design and not a consequence of sin. You know, I, I'm running out of time. And right now, I'm essentially done. I want to take you to Hebrews 8, though. We were there last hour. I want to hit it again. Chuck told me he liked it. You read a verse about growing old and obsolete. So here it is. But even before verse 13, notice verse 6, verse 7. Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as He is also the mediator of a better covenant. Mosaic covenant was never designed to be eternal. See, and this is going to be huge. The, the author of Hebrews is getting this across to the recipients of Hebrews to let them know that Leviticus, the, the Mosaic Code, the, the whole law, okay, was never designed to be eternal. Okay? It was always designed to be fulfilled and replaced. The new covenant is the one that's eternal. So, Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he's a mediator of a better covenant and acted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. You know? Why do you need a New Testament? What was wrong with the Old Testament? It's not just a flippant question. You can use it kind of humorously and make some jokes with it. But actually there's some deep theology in that. Why is there a new covenant? And um, finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant. And that's why we have Jeremiah 31. That's why there's a new covenant. That's why Israel will not enter into the millennial kingdom based upon the Mosaic law. They're going to enter into the millennial kingdom based upon the new covenant of Jeremiah 31. And so whatever is growing old, verse 13 when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Notice ready to disappear. Fixin' to disappear. Got this great fixin' to expression here in the South. Okay? 
not having already disappeared. That used to, I got mad when I was learning Hebrews as a kid and my pastor was teaching it and it, it, it upset me. You know, forget ready to disappear. I'm done with it now. Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. I'm never sacrificing a goat. I'm never observing a, a, a Mosaic law thing. In my universe, Mosaic law is Old Testament history gone and never to be seen again. But to the readers of, of Hebrews, it's ready to disappear. And it's true related to former priests in the first century that were in fearfulness of their temple being destroyed by the Romans, but it's even more true of Hebrew readers in the tribulation, the coming tribulation. This book's going to be powerful for the 144,000 Jewish witnesses. Okay? And in their reality, Mosaic law is obsolete, growing old, and ready to disappear. All right. So we've got, to, we've got to think about Hebrews in a tribulation context as well. Put yourself in the shoes of a Jewish evangelist in the tribulation. What does the book of Hebrews mean to you in the priesthood emphasis that, that is given here? Um, all right. Let me, uh, one extra passage is not in my notes. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, just because it's on my mind and I'm preaching a funeral. Um, we've got burial and resurrection. And let me just read these verses for you and pop some bubbles, those uh, assumption bubbles. Resurrection from the dead, verse 42. Notice there's glory. Let me back up. Verse 40, there's glory. Let me back up. All right, now. All right. God gives a body as he wished. God does what He wants based upon His pleasure, based upon His wisdom. And so birds have a certain body, fish have a certain body, beasts have a certain body, angels have a certain body, humanity has a certain body. There are heavenly bodies, there are earthly bodies. The glory of the heavenly is one, the glory of the earthly is another. Did you see that? The earthly body is a glory. The earthly body is a glory. Okay? Is is, not was, not used to be, not well, you know, Adam and Eve had a, no, is. Was that lost in the fall? Was it damaged? Was it, you know, what's the effect of the fall? Or is the earthly still a glory? Is humanity in the image of God or not? And it is, both before the fall and after the fall. Is the earthly body a glory or not? Yes, it is, both before the fall and after the fall. It is a glory. There's a glory of the sun, a glory of the moon, a glory of the stars. Star differs from star and glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. Now, you've read this a thousand times. You've heard it at funerals. You're going to hear it on Tuesday, I think. Um, if you think that sin has anything to do with that verse, read that verse again. The body was perishable when there was no sin. Adam and Eve were created in perishable bodies on a perishable earth, in a perishable universe. And their body didn't become perishable because of sin. It is sown a perishable body. That's what it is. Why were Adam and Eve, why did they have to eat? From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but why? Adam could just say, no thanks Lord, I'm not hungry. Oh, he was hungry. He was designed hungry. He, why does he have to eat? Because he's in a mortal body, okay? What happens if he doesn't eat? What happens to his mortal body if he hungers and doesn't feed it? Could that body die? What if he, what if he falls out of the tree, climbing the tree to pick the fruit? Could that body be injured? Okay? See, Again, and this is Answers in Genesis does this. They 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 uh, they abuse Romans five, because through one man sin came into the world and death through sin, and they they just they shove every kind of imaginable death into that verse in Romans five, and they're wrong. Physical death was not a consequence of Adam's original sin. Spiritual death was the only consequence of Adam's original sin. Physical death is a consequence of being driven out of the garden and no longer having access to the tree of life. Why did God put a tree of life in the Garden of Eden? If they were sinless, if they were immortal, why put a tree of life in the Garden of Eden? 
Why was God afraid that they would reach out and eat that tree of life and live forever as fallen creatures? So he shoved them out of the garden and he put an angel there with a flaming sword. The tree of life was the provision for uh, for mortality to live forever. And mortality will live forever in the thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ in the new heavens and on the new earth. That's why the tree of life gets replanted on the new earth. Not only that, but a river of life flows on the new earth. All right. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. Is that because of sin? Separate sin from all these verses. What's the dishonor of humility? What's the dishonor? Think about Christ. He humbled himself. He had dishonor in his humiliation. We have dishonor in our humiliation. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that, not because of sin. All right. I'm going to have to end here. But the natural body, it is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Nothing to do with sin. Nothing to do with Adam and his original sin. It's always been the design. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man became a living soul, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual, and sin has nothing to do with any of that. Have you seen Adam and his sin anywhere in this passage? You see the first Adam and the last Adam, but not the sin. First man is from the earth earthly, second man is from heaven. As we have borne the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. And then it leads into the rapture passage and we get transformed and so forth. But the original design, Adam and Eve were mortal. That's why they had to eat. That's why they had to eat. And guess what? When they ate, oh, now I'm going to get crude. But they, they pulled a, an apple off the tree. They pulled a banana off the tree. They pulled whatever they could eat from all kinds of trees. And guess what? Every fruit they plucked died. Botanical death before the fall. They ate it. The Bible says what happens when it eats, when you eat. It goes in, it comes out. Okay? We get that. There's death before sin. So don't don't get lost in the bad theology of Romans 5. It says that there was never any kind of death before before Adam sinned. And so they're all worked up about the fossil record. They're all worked worked up about animals killing other animals. That's irrelevant has nothing to do with Romans 5. Okay? All right. Well, I'm done. Thank you, Father, for this day, for this truth, for all your faithfulness. Thank you, Father, for your Son, the God-man, who in the beginning, the God-man, the begotten one, created the heavens and the earth. I pray that we would understand all these beginnings and keep them straight and celebrate that uh, he was daily before you and he was having his delight in us, in the sons of men. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.